Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live from our studios in Washington, D.C., which, uh, to be completely transparent, is now my kitchen table because I can't get into my studios. Uh, But thus is life in the middle of a global pandemic. I'm Burke Allen, and we're going to keep our chins up, keep a smile on our faces, and keep plodding on forward nonetheless with our Big Time Talker podcast. And we're able to do that thanks to our buddies at SpeakerMatch.com. They are the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Now, what does that mean? That means it's a marketplace where uh, meeting planners come together with speakers and they try to work things out. And there's lots to work out in today's world where many speakers are not able to do in-person presentations. If you want to find out how to make that all happen virtually, log on to speakermatch.com and tell them you heard about them on the Big Time Talker podcast. Well, today we're going to talk about having chutzpah. During the pandemic. And uh, Mason Harris is going to join us and tell us exactly what that means. And I think a good place to start with that uh, is is with a Gentile like myself who just sounds like he's clearing his throat when he says chutzpah. So you're the chutzpah guy at the chutzpahguy.com. What does that mean? What do you mean by chutzpah? That's a great question. And first, let me tell you, you uh, pronounce it like a a lunchman, (laughs) like a member of the tribe. Well, thank you, sir. (laughs) And that's... (laughs) <laughs> and it's probably because you are a member of the tribe, and by that I mean the Chutzpah tribe. Okay. Uh, you have this podcast. You have a, a record of success and challenging both yourself and breaking uh, barriers in the work that you do. That is a portion of the definition of Chutzpah, um, uh, or Chutzpah, as, uh, as you've been pronouncing it. But let me ask you, you have a sense. How would you describe Chutzpah? You know, I would describe it uh, as something that goes into a soup. No, wait, wait, that's a matzo ball. No, I would describe it, <laughs> uh, Mason Harris is our guest today from the thechutzpahguy.com. Uh, I would describe it as grit. Grit is the word that I most closely associate with it. Am I, am I anywhere close? You are absolutely uh, correct, and that in the sense that that's what I hear from a lot of people, and grit undoubtedly is part of chutzpah. Uh, I think where uh, chutzpah has been confusing for a lot of people, we hear grit, we hear um, courage, uh, we hear uh, the ability to offend people and not look back. Now, chutzpah has both a negative and a positive connotation. So I've been looking at it during research, interviewing people, and trying to get a sense for it's more than just grit. And by the way, uh, when I say that you are a, mem- uh, a member of the tribe and that you understand what chutzpah is and you pronounce it, I did a presentation in Oklahoma. And I'm from the East Coast, so New York, Washington, D.C. And I was familiar when I would do presentations on this concept and the chutzpah rules that I'm writing about, speaking about, uh, that when I asked the question, people would have a good sense. I was in Oklahoma. I wasn't as confident. Yeah. I didn't know what the response would be. Well, I asked it. Fewer hands than usual went up, but there was grit, there was determination, there was audacity. And then one word that I loved, and it was gumption. And gumption. I hadn't heard gumption before, like but it is a perfect word for the culture, for the geography of where I was, where people think in terms of overcoming obstacles, uh, perseverance. So that is the gist of uh, how people look at chutzpah. I've also asked, is chutzpah good or bad? And I get both answers. 
the research I've done, the places, uh, some of the, the articles I've read, there are people who believe chutzpah is about the worst characteristic you can have as a human being because it shows no sympathy, empathy, uh, care about the person uh, who's on the other end of whatever action you're doing. But for the most part, I see chutzpah as a very, very positive element and contributes to the best of society. When we think of, uh, for example, business leaders, if I was to, uh, I, I will ask you, what, what business leaders do you think um, are uh, exemplify chutzpah? Ah, that's a the great epitome question. of chutzpah. The first person I would think of, he just passed away a few months ago, was uh, Jack Welch. You know, was a guy that. That is a business Excellent. leader. You know, he was a pull up by the bootstraps kind of guy and get it done. Sam Walton would be another great example. The founder of Walmart is a guy that, you know, famously continued to drive that Ford pickup truck for years and years after he could afford to have a guy drive his fleet of Lamborghinis. So there's a couple of examples. Am I hitting it anywhere close in, in your mind? 100%. And you also hit on one rule of chutzpah that so few people actually get. You mentioned how Sam Walton, he could afford the Lamborghinis. He could, he could drive whatever he wanted, um, buy whatever corporate jets he wanted um, as a means of expressing and showing everybody his success, his wealth. But he had this one rule of chutzpah that I call humility, which is the ability uh, in a couple of definitions here. One is to share the credit. Two is to not feel a need to show off what you've accomplished. Let your accomplishments speak for themselves. They don't have to be dressed up in the Lamborghini. Not that I don't want a Lamborghini, by the way. Yes. Um, actually, I, I would take a Tesla. But but I get that <laughs> sometimes having these rewards of our success uh, can be drivers for us, can be motivators, which actually gets even to today's topic a bit. Um, so humility is uh, certainly a humble side, but also it's about um, accepting apologies for people from people who have wronged you and being willing to apologize when you have done wrong. I have a great example of that. Um, the eight, well, the H in chutzpah, the second H in chutzpah stands for humility. So are you a baseball fan by chance, Burke? I am indeed. Yes, sir. It's interesting. I wasn't going to be speaking about humility, but you brought it up, so this is a good example. Several years back, a Detroit Tigers pitcher, a rather average pitcher, um, last name was Galarraga, okay. was in the midst of a perfect game. I don't know if you remember this. It's uh, probably about eight, ten years ago. Okay. And this is in the days before overturning calls because of video replay. Well, we all know a perfect game is very, very rare. Probably about 25 of them in the history of, of modern baseball. Over 100 years worth, only 25 times as a pitcher um, uh, achieved 27 batters up, 27 batters down. Well, he gets to the ninth inning, and he has a perfect game. And again, we're not talking about one of the superstar pitchers in the league. This is an average pitcher who is having an incredibly moment. Well, he gets the first out, two more to go. He gets the second out, one more out to go. The, the last batter hits a ground ball towards the first baseman. Easy, easy play. First baseman comes off the bed. The pitcher, Galarraga, covers first base, throws to uh, Galarraga, and that's it. The game is over. Perfect game. Arms raised in triumph, except for one problem. The umpire called the batter safe. Oh. And Galarraga goes, um, I was here. Umpire responded, he was safe. 
There was no way to overturn that. Now, think about a lot of people who might have responded in different ways. Uh, athletes, especially pro athletes, kind of have had, to some extent, a charmed life. Um, always popular in high school, never problems uh, getting a date for prom because their skills were respected and admired. Well, instead of kicking dirt, cursing at the umpire, he took the ball, he went back, and he got the last batter out. So it became a one-hit shutout. Well, after the game, back in the locker room, the umpires were looking at the plays. And that's when this first base umpire realized he blew the call. But this chance for this pitcher to basically go down in baseball history is over because there's no appeal of this. Let's go to the next day. Um, Galarraga is asked by his manager to bring the lineup card to the umpire behind the plate who happens to be the umpire that was uh, at first base the day before. Okay. He was, I believe, intentional. He brings the, uh, the, the lineup card over, and the umpire, in tears, basically says, I blew it. I'm sorry. I don't know how I can make it back. I made such an error, and I know that there's nothing I can do now. Colorado basically reaches out and says, it's okay. It was a mistake. It wasn't intentional. So the ability to recognize your fault, the ability to forgive, move on, is, I believe, an, a, an important rule of chutzpah, although it's the last thing that people think about. They don't think about humility of being humble. No, they think right. about, oh, people with chutzpah, they grab the attention. It's the old expression that success is a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. Everybody takes credit but very few people accept the responsibility when it comes down to it. Mason Harris so is our guest today, your... and we're talking about uh, chutzpah. Uh, and, and you visit Mason, by the way, online at uh, thechutzpahguide.com. Um, and, and what an amazing illustration. But I wonder how we can apply it to today. Uh, you know, Mason, one of the reasons that I thought it was important to have you on the Big Time Talker podcast is, you know, we have all taken it in the short hairs with COVID-19. And some people have taken it a lot worse than others. You and I were talking right before we, we started the show today. Uh, you know, you live in Metro Washington, D.C., uh, as do I, one of the, the hardest hit places uh, in America with COVID. You're a New York guy, and, and everyone knows what's happened in that city. Um, there are now uh, very few degrees of separation between a lot of us uh, and somebody we know who has suffered personally in a pretty significant way. And whether that be from a health standpoint, I, I read a study just the day before yesterday that one in seven Americans now know someone who's lost their life because of COVID-19 or from a business standpoint. And I guarantee you that everybody, everybody in America knows somebody that is suffering greatly economically. So, so your concept I think is very sound, but I wonder what you do with chutzpah during an unprecedented time in our world's history during pandemic. And I know you've got some thoughts on that. I, I'd be curious to see, you know, how do you even begin to unpack that? Sure. Bert, it's, it's a great question. It's a great overview of what so many, what we're all going through right now. There are categories, as you said, um, there are people who have lost their lives. That's permanent. It's, it's for them and for their families. This loss is, is unthinkable. Um, how it, how it happened, how unprecedented and unexpected it was. There are people who were ill, and who are, whose insurance may or may not cover the medical costs, the care to bring them back. There are 
some of us who are fortunate who are still working normally, they might be the frontline workers, people who are learning to appreciate a bit more right now because they're out there all the time. Uh, there are those who are, just, are adjusting to working from home. And that adjustment is important, too, because when you are out of the office and you're home, the family dynamics can change. I've had people say to me, you know, now that I'm home, my spouse or my partner, it's kind of like they, they don't get that I'm working. Well, I'm available to play. I'm available for questions. I'm available for tasks. Adjusting to that is, is uh, something that they have to face. And then, of course, the people who have lost their jobs, their businesses, you know, a good portion of their life savings, and how are they going to bounce back? So your topic um, with, with how do you stay motivated, make the most of the uncertainty that surrounds us, is so critical at the moment. Two pieces to that that are worth focusing on. One is staying motivated, and one is uncertainty. Uh, motivation is something we all face on a regular basis, whether or not it's a, a time of uncertainty. Uh, the uncertainty highlights it. Within the chutzpah rules, there are uh, a few rules that identify that are specific to this. One is relating, is uh, what I call creating value. Uh, and by creating value, I'm talking about both our personal and our work relationships. What do we do, especially in these times, both to help ourselves stay motivated, but also to ensure we're there for our colleagues? If we are in a leadership role, on a management position, what are we doing to make sure that our team is as positive as they can, as they can be? Um, so part of the answer to that is providing the big picture, ongoing communication, and the things that will further develop the relationship, even throughout the uncertainty. In regard to the uncertainty, there are things that we also recognize. There are some things that we can control and some things that we can't. And that becomes very, very critical. Let's take a look for a second about another one of the chutzpah rules that I call trailblazing, which is stretching the boundaries, being creative. There is a, an interesting news article within the last week or two about a father who created a homemade arcade claw game with his kids and stuffed toys and holding one upside down who would reach inside. The video is actually amusing to watch. This is what I mean by a little bit about trailblazing. You're home with your kids. Expectations are different. You want to entertain. You want to show innovation. You want them to learn. How can you go about doing that? However, the two most critical pieces of the, of the eight-foot schools that I think that apply here are what I call purpose and reducing ambiguity. Are you familiar with the book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl by any chance? I've never read the book, but I do know of it. Okay. Um, a lot of people have heard of it because Frankl has impacted um, psychiatry and motivation tremendously uh, from his work. His work was brought about under the most extreme of situations. He was a prisoner at the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. Uh, he lost several members of his family. As a psychiatrist, not knowing what had happened to his wife and other members of his family, he started observing who had the better chance of surviving this, this terrible, terrible situation. And he created a couple of categories. One was bad luck. If you had bad luck to be selected for the gas chamber, there's nothing you could do. It was beyond your control. If you had the bad luck to be in the, uh, uh, become a target for some guard who was bored and was, was just shooting randomly, 
bad luck, nothing you could do. But for those people who had the ability to work, he could then say, I think this person will survive and this person will not. And the distinction was which of those people had a purpose for surviving? Who had something that was going to make them um, look beyond their temporary situation? And they had to believe it was temporary. They couldn't give up hope. But to look beyond their temporary situation because there was something worthwhile at the end. And this relates to Jim Collins and uh, his book, Good to Great, as well, which I know a lot of uh, uh, probably our business listeners are familiar with. In the book, Jim Collins speaks about the Stockdale paradox. Uh, And Jim Stockdale, um, as you may know, was the highest ranking uh, U.S. naval officer uh, prisoner in Vietnam. And during his eight years in prison, he was tortured over 20 times. And he was also still the leader of those other prisoners who were there. And he felt a tremendous responsibility to make sure that they were motivated, um, able to maintain pace, and kept their spirits up. And he realized that people needed both to be uh, optimistic about the future, but not overly optimistic about the future. So what I mean by that is people who are optimistic that the, uh, we're going to get released from these camps, the war will be over by Christmas, and Christmas would come and they wouldn't get released. Um, and they think, well, maybe Easter, Easter, that's the big time. And that didn't happen. They get a little bit more depressed, more upset. If they set their sights on specific dates, this, this very high level of optimism led to them not surviving. They had to accept the reality. Well, we're in a situation right now that's very serious, very real. People are suffering all over the world. And there is no end in sight yet. There is no date where we are going to have a vaccine. There is no date where all the stores are going to reopen and we can go out safely to a a restaurant. We just don't know when that's going to happen. So the the inner drive that we will survive this is critical, but it has to be balanced by not being overly optimistic because we just don't know the when and where. Sure, sure. Mason Harris, by the way, is our guest today, and and we're talking about how to to wrap your arms around where we are in the world today. He's uh, available at thechutzpahguy.com, and finding chutzpah during and and in the aftermath of this pandemic as we start to, to come out of this thing right now. You know, you talk about the different uh, personal challenges, which, look, I I feel somewhat inadequate to even uh, weigh in on because the, the pain has just got to be unimaginable for folks who have lost someone during this disease and, and especially in the, the horrible way it takes folks from you and you're unable to be there. In the end, the, the business piece, the economic piece is equally as tough. And I know you do a lot of work with the people into the equation uh, in the business world. And I would have to think that a lot of people development events, people development investment from business, uh, that's off the table right now. For example, you know, you're a speaker and you're unable to hop on an airplane and go out and do a conference somewhere and be a keynote speaker. Um, even in my own office, the educational seminars that I would send uh, my folks to, their training stuff, that's uh, unfortunately, not in the cards right now, probably for an awful lot of different businesses. So as somebody that, that spends a lot of time on the development of what I believe is your most valuable asset in the business world, people, 
and the people are being furloughed or let go or laid off, or at best case, they're able to hang on right now but are, are not able to get any professional development. What do you do with that? Uh, again, another great question. In my specific situation, and, and you refer to that, yes, what I found is as a as a, uh, a professional speaker, as someone who enjoys being in front of an audience and sharing the insights that I've learned, hoping I can provide takeaways for my audience that benefit them, their lives, and their companies. That has all ended. But I believe it's temporary. Actually, I know it's temporary. Uh, that do- hasn't stopped me, though, from reaching out to people and even changing my approach in reaching out. Whereas previously, a lot of what I was doing might have been training and understanding of concepts to enable one to achieve more because there was a process, there was a quasi-roadmap for them to look at. Now my approach is for the audience, or at least for the companies that I'm speaking with, to plant seeds for the future, is we know that keeping people employed is more important right now than ensuring they're up on their training. And culture is important, but, you know, money for culture right now just isn't there. And nor should it be. I'd rather people stay employed than to think about, hey, let's plan a big event and party because uh, we're doing the, the following. Those are important, not minimizing them. But during periods of crisis, we have to prioritize. So in my case, I'm pointing out to people that having employees that are able to think more creatively, to be innovative in their, in their approach to these problems with, the, with your customers now, to create more value in the solutions you provide, that has an ROI. Whereas in the past, ROI was one of the things I focused on for my clients, the people who were hiring me. Now, that is the primary focus by far. Because if they understand that they can see an ROI, they will get the benefit of that. Um, They will then make the investment or are more likely to make the investment. Our guest is Mason Harris, and and we're talking about uh, wrapping your head around how to deal with this entire pandemic, the, the global situation. and. Uh, you can find them online at thechutzpahguide.com. I want to ask you, Mason, about uh, some more granular, specific instances because there are, there are some uh, industries that have benefited a small number from uh, you know the shift in in what people need. You know, delivery services and medical supply companies, and uh, there are some industries that are able to hold their own. Uh, that provide somewhat essential services for us, and then there's some industries that have just flat out been decimated. For example, we work a lot in the the entertainment space, uh, you know, and, and if you're a, a part of that touring musician or touring theater industry, well, not only does it involve the people who are on stage, but there are, you know, thousands of micro businesses behind the scenes, the, the sound people, the lighting people, the, the ticket people, the venues, the agents, the promoters, the tour accountants, the tour managers, uh, that I, you know, I could go on and on. And again, those are all either solo entrepreneurs or micro businesses that run that entire engine. And for right now, no one knows when uh, concerts are going to come back. Just like uh, you know, uh, sporting events, uh, professional and, and college sports with with actual fans in the stands. If if you were to talk to someone in one of those industries that is is having a really tough time 
adapting to the way things are now. I don't like that, that phrase, the new normal. I'm not sure that this is normal in any way, shape, or form, but, but that are not able to easily pivot, and you wanted to impart some chutzpah on them, what would you say to them? Uh, great question, and you, and you finished up with a word I was going to use, pivot. I have a, a colleague, a friend from my days in uh, EO, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, who has, uh, among his businesses, he started an international coaching business called Gazelles. Uh, he also does summits for uh, scaling up for companies that are trying to scale. Well, he's changed the scaling up to scaling forward because for some companies now, there's a scaling down piece that has to be recognized. That's the brutal fact the, that's part of uh, the Stockdale paradise. You have to face the brutal, the brutal fact. So in his case, he had, for example, a large conference scheduled in Dallas for early May. It obviously didn't happen. Uh, all this began happening, and the realization that they may have to pivot began in late February, when some people began uh, became aware of the seriousness of what was going on. And by late March, after uh, President Trump had stopped all incoming traffic from China, uh, people were beginning to take it more seriously. Although, in some cases, it still didn't happen for another month down the road, as we've seen with some of the decisions that have been made. Well, in his case, obviously he had to cancel that uh, in-person event with its 800 to 1,000 people. Uh, and all of the, you're right, the micro-businesses that depend on this, the lighting guys, the AV guys, the caterers, the hotels, the restaurants that look forward to a conference like this being in town, multi-day conference, they have had to suffer. So let's take a look at one of them, restaurants, because I actually years ago wrote a book on restaurant marketing, and I have a particular appreciation for what they provide to us that is way beyond food and a good meal. It's it's about community. It's about being social. It's about getting out. Um, and here, that's an industry that is so that is really facing some challenges in coming back. And it's not because some of them won't be opening soon, but because every politician and every rule related to op- reopening of restaurants right now is about look, you may only be able to open at 25 to 30, maybe even 50% of capacity if there's some way that we can ensure that uh, well, all the customers are safe from each other. Well, I don't know a single restaurateur whose model isn't based on 80 to 100% capacity. That's right. The math just the doesn't work there. So, what do you do with yeah, that? It, so, one, you have to look at what can I do differently? So is there a pivot available at the same time as they, as they move forward with the um, uh, reduced number of people that they can serve? So we've seen restaurants that have gone to more takeout, delivery, and uh, pickup. Uh, so by pickup, I mean, yeah, it's takeout, but we're going to deliver right to the door. So you come up to the restaurant, let us know you're here, and we're going to run out with your, with your hot meal. We so appreciate your business. Does it replace what they're doing? No. But it is a way to keep their doors open, if they can. Now, obviously, a fine dining restaurant trying to do this is going to run into more difficulties than um, 
a restaurant, but an Italian restaurant that I frequent in the Potomac area that has done a very good job, by the way, of maintaining their takeout business and running out the door or even increasing their deliveries. Now, the other piece, I've noticed some of the bigger food provider companies have started offering their restaurants packaged meals as a strategy to move forward. So uh, just uh, two weeks ago, I was uh, part of a, or listening to, I was a member and uh, in the audience of a virtual conference. And the CEO of a company that had a number of food franchise food, lo- food locations throughout the country, different brands that we're all familiar with, was speaking about what, what could they impact versus what could they not? So all of their franchisees and corporate stores that were in shopping malls and the shopping malls were closed, there was nothing that they could do. They couldn't offer a pickup. They couldn't offer delivery because the malls were closed. Employees couldn't get in. Kitchens were done. They couldn't get food deliveries anyway. But for those stores that were outside, they were able to generate enough increasing business to offset what was being lost. I have never in my life gone to a drive-through ice cream stand, as an example. And in the last two weeks, I've tried two different drive-through ice cream stands because it's a way for us to get out and still be safe. So uh, the pivoting is what can we offer that's a bit different? Uh, 